For those of you here with me, would you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5? We are plodding through the book of Matthew, taking section by section, trying to hear Jesus, His words, and apply it to our lives. This sermon that Jesus preaches, the Sermon on the Mount, speaks directly to us. It challenges us. It exposes the sin in our heart, and it also gives us positive application and action, action steps, things to do in light of Jesus' teaching. So it's very applicable, very relevant, seems to each section speak to the issue of the day. Last week we talked about the importance of your word, keeping your word. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. This week we're going to talk about how to react or respond when people wrong you. How do you respond when people wrong you? Have you been wronged in your life? We have all been wronged, if we admit it. I think, you know, the first time you're wronged is, you know, when you're a child. One of your first memories of being wronged by somebody. Someone taking your toy. Someone saying something very mean to you. And then the rest of your life is essentially enduring people who wrong you. Being offended. Being attacked. Whether it's physically or verbally. Maybe not totally direct, but indirect. Passive aggression. Anybody been a victim of passive aggressive behavior? How do you respond when others wrong you? Do you return evil for evil or return good for evil? Charles Spurgeon uh, wisely wrote this, to return evil for evil is beast-like. He said it's beast-like, it's animal-like. One of my my kid's favorite uh, persons to watch is this guy on YouTube. His name is Coyote Peterson. I don't know if you've heard of him. Coyote Peterson is an animal enthusiast. This guy goes out and captures all these fun, creative, cool-looking animals. Some of them are dangerous. He, he'll grab a, a snake or a lizard or something. Animals that could bite, animals that could sting, even animals that could spine you, Okay. So he, he, he captures all these creative creatures, and he gives some educational content to the creatures, but also he explains that most of these animals, either their bite, their sting, or their spines, are given not for the offensive, but most of these things are given to them for defensive, so that they would be able to resist attackers, or that they'd be able to escape from predators. So it's very animal-like, it's very beast-like that when you are attacked or threatened, your defense or your response is to bite back, to attack back, to sting back, so on and so forth. Animals naturally retaliate. You ever gone behind a dog? Hopefully you haven't because you learn the consequences. You go behind a dog, you surprise a dog, grab its tail, good luck. It'll bite you. Unfortunately, 
This kind of behavior is natural in us too. We tend to retaliate when attacked. We bite back. Or maybe you clap back, as Twitter would say. We retaliate. We we fight. We return fire. We hold a grudge. We keep score. We desire pain and, and we act vengefully toward those who wrong us. Even the movies today, you know, coming out of Hollywood, the TV series, are, are often based on the plot of vengeance, revenge. This is common. We return evil for evil naturally, sinfully. Spurgeon continues to write, he writes, Evil for evil is beast-like, but good for evil is godlike. Good for evil is godlike. The ultimate example of someone returning good for evil or harm done towards them is God. God showed us the ultimate example at the cross. While we were enemies of God, actively running away from Him in our sin, rejecting Him with our disbelief, He sent His Son. He sent His Son not to condemn us, not to punish us, but to provide a way of salvation. He gave us good in return for our evil. Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins. The ultimate good for our ultimate evil. So, I ask you again, how do you respond when others wrong you? Are you more like a dog or are you like God? This is what Jesus speaks to in Matthew 5. Verses 38 to 42. He calls his disciples away from the natural towards the unnatural. He calls his kingdom citizens away from beast-like behavior and toward God-like behavior. You're not going to find this kind of behavior in the animal kingdom, but you will find this kind of behavior in God's kingdom. This is a characteristic of God's people, that they return good for evil. That they endure suffering for the sake of others. Point number one in your outline. To really understand this principle, you have to understand the Old Testament law that Jesus quotes here. Point number one is ancient civil retribution. Big words, but it'll become... You'll understand it as we go through it. Ancient civil retribution. Look down at the text. Jesus quotes an ancient law. You have heard that it was said, verse 38, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is the ancient lex talionis. That is Latin for the law of retaliation. This is found not only in the Old Testament, but found in ancient law of different cultures. It was found on the ancient law code of Hammurabi, written around 1700 B.C. That is before Moses wrote in the 1400s or so B.C. This is an ancient artifact that was dug up, and on this artifact you find these words, If a man put out the eye of another man, his eye shall be put out. If he break another man's bone." His bone shall be broken. If a man knock out the teeth of his equal, his teeth shall be knocked out. See, we see the same principle here. Eye for eye, bone for bone, tooth for tooth. 
In the Old Testament, the lex talionis is found in Exodus 21, verses 23 to 25. It says this, But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. It's repeated in Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19. This law is known in the Old Testament. Now we have to ask the question, why was this law given? Why was this law given? What is Jesus going to say? You know, it seems like he's contrasting things in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. He's contrasting what the Old Testament law says with what his new covenant law is. It seems like a contrast unless you understand why the law was given in the first place. So what was this law for? First, you need to know this is a fair law. Is it not? This is justice, fairness. It ensures that the punishment fits the crime. And if you think about it, it protects not only the victim, but it protects the perpetrator. It protects the perpetrator from excessive punishment. He's not going to be punished further than the crime that he committed. It also protects the victim. It ensures justice for the victim to prevent further crime for others and a due process for justice. This is a fair law. That's why it was widely embraced across ancient culture. But you need to know, secondly... That this is a civil law. This is really important. This is a civil law. We need to remember that Israel was a sovereign nation. And so in the law of God for Israel, in the Old Covenant law, it included not only a moral code of moral principles, but included a civil code for how the body ought to govern each member. This was part of the civil code for the governing of the corporate entity. So with this law came a justice system. Israel had a justice system. If you remember, priests, elders, and judges were appointed in each region to, in each region to enforce the law. Moses reminds the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 1 that he chose wise, understanding, and experienced men And he appointed them as heads over the people. They were to hear the cases between the people and judge righteously. And he expressly commands, you shall not be partial in judgment. These men were to hear the small and the great alike, not be intimidated by anyone. And then you see this phrase in the Old Testament law, for the judgment is ultimately God's. So God's design for Israel, the sovereign nation, was to appoint, similar to us, a justice system where judges would oversee the cases or the disputes between men. And that their judgment was to be righteous. It was to be impartial. And it was ultimately a judgment on God's behalf. So rule well, judges. Don't be partial in your judgment because God is not partial. This law was for that system. Israel was not to be like the wild, wild west. Okay? Every man for himself. Right? 
avenging yourself, taking revenge for the wrongs done toward you personally. No, there was a justice system for that. And so the lex talionis was not license for every man to avenge himself. It was a rule to be administered and enforced by the judges who were given the authority to punish criminals fairly. That's important to understand. Because what the Pharisees did is they took a corporate civil law and made it an individual moral principle. They said, ah, that law gives me the right to take vengeance for myself. That's not how God intended it or designed it. In fact, God seems to say the exact opposite elsewhere in the Old Testament. Look at these verses. I think I have them on the screen. Proverbs 20, 22. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord. He will deliver you. Proverbs 24, 29. Do not say, I'll do to him as he has done to me. I'll pay the man back for what he's done. Don't say that. Leviticus 19, 18. Here's an explicit command. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. Deuteronomy 32, 35. Here's the precedent. Vengeance, God says, is mine. Leave retribution to me. Leave vengeance for the wrongs that people do to you. Leave it to me. Leave it to me. So let me ask you, have you been wronged? We talked about how everybody has been wronged at least one point in their lives. And sometimes we watch the news and we see the criminal get away. The perpetrator. He gets off Scott clean. Or you feel like, Man, I feel like his punishment should have been far greater because that crime was great. It seems like he got a less severe punishment. Systems fail. Our own justice system sometimes fails. And we see all the time that criminals get away with crime and it seems like they don't receive just punishment. Hear this. Hear this. God says, vengeance is mine. Leave it to me. God tells you, I'll take care of it. If your justice system fails you, I'll take care of it. Leave vengeance to me. Do not repay evil for evil. Do not take vengeance into your own hands. Wait. Wait, Proverbs 20. 22 says, wait on the Lord and trust Him. But, just like scribes and Pharisees, we get an inch from God's Word and we love to take the mile, don't we? This seems like God is giving us permission to take vengeance into our own hands. To pay back evil for evil. This is what the scribes and the Pharisees did. They point back to the Lex Talionis And they say, see, this is what God wants us to do. When someone wrongs you, then they owe you. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, bone for bone. Retaliate. Seek retribution. Take back what's yours. Fight for your dignity, your property, and your rights. Is that what God intended with this law? What would God have us do when we're personally attacked? What does Jesus say? What does Jesus say? 
contrary to what the scribes and the Pharisees taught. Jesus brings in this new covenant law, remember? And He brings a new explicit code. It doesn't contradict the Old Testament law, but it actually draws out the heart of it. So what should we, disciples of Jesus Christ, do? How should we treat those who wrong us? Look at verse 39. And you need to hear this command explicitly. But I say to you, Jesus says, do not resist the one who is evil. Do not resist the one who is evil. That command grates against everything natural in your body. It grates against your sinful flesh. To want to retaliate, to want to get back at them, God says, do not resist the one who is evil. In the Greek, it literally, it can be translated this way, do not stand against them. Do not stand against them. The one who is evil. Now, little caveat here. Jesus is not talking about defending others. There are different biblical principles for standing up for the weak, right? Standing up for those who are oppressed, those who are poor. Standing up on God's behalf against the system that is telling you to contradict what God's Word says. That's all different. What Jesus is talking about is standing up for yourself. Notice all the situations that follow is when people wrong you personally. When they slap you. When they sue and strip you. When they force you. Don't stand up against them. Wow. I'm sure you've heard, I heard from my father, these, this phrase. You need to stand up for yourself. Fight back. That's the dog-like nature. What's the God-like nature? Stand down. Don't retaliate. It's hard for us to do. Jesus describes three scenarios. We need to understand these scenarios of personal attacks to understand the principle that Jesus is driving here. And you'll notice that they digress from bad to worse. You might think the first one's bad, and it is bad, but it gets worse after the first one. Look at the first scenario, the second half of verse 39. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So, number one, when you're struck, have you taken a slap to the cheek? doesn't feel good, but it's not life-threatening, is it? It's more of an insult than anything. It's an attack on your pride. And also, if it was a hit to the right cheek, if you're standing against someone and you hit them on the right cheek, most people, ancient times or most scenarios were given for the right-handed individual. This was a backhand. It says, take the backhand and let him give you the forehand. That's the scenario Jesus is describing. It's insulting. It's not a lethal blow, but it is a humiliating blow. The gesture 
of turning your other cheek and not attacking in response is to surrender and forfeit what? Your pride. By not retaliating, by taking a slap, taking a blow to the face, you surrender and you forfeit your pride. Because a, a, a slap to the face is an insult, it's an attack on your dignity. And so to not retaliate is to forfeit your pride. You know what Jesus says? The first thing that needs to go when you're personally attacked, your pride. You need to lay that down. That's the first thing that needs to be checked at the door when you've been personally attacked. Forfeit your pride. And honestly, if we think about when we've been personally attacked, usually our pride is the first thing that's provoked. You're offended. Oh, how dare you strike me? How dare you slander me, gossip about me, hurt me, belittle me? Pride is the stimulus behind retaliation. You want to take back what's yours. Vengeance is mine, you say. They owe me. They need to feel what I feel. That's pride. That's pride. So Jesus says first, when they attack you, even a slap to the face, the first thing you must forfeit, disciple, is your pride. Lay that down. Let them strike you again. Don't strike, black, don't strike back. The second scenario, when you're stripped. When you're stripped. Look at verse 40. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Wow. So this is a picture of you in the courtroom. Okay? And your accuser, whether justly or unjustly, is suing the shirt off your back. Literally suing you for everything you have. You've reached the end of your pride. Now they're after your property. Now, what is the tunic and the cloak? What's the difference? The tunic was a garment kind of like underwear. It would go underneath your outer garments. It was an essential item, of course, for them to be at the point of taking your tunic. You've almost lost everything except maybe the item that was the most valuable in your life in the first century. Do you know what the most valuable item in your life in the first century would be? The cloak. The cloak. The cloak is the outer garment. You may think it's not as essential as the underwear, the tunic, but it was actually far more valuable. And if they had taken everything from you, if they took your house if they took your means of income, if they took even your tunic, all you had left to survive a winter, to be warm in the cold, is what? Your cloak. Your cloak. Your robe. It was far more valuable than the tunic. It was often the last item to go. Believe it or not, your underwear would go before your coat. So consider what Jesus is saying here. Even if they've taken almost all you have, don't resist. Don't stand against them, but let them take everything else. Wow. John Calvin writes this. He summarizes this point well. He says, even after sustaining the small loss of a tunic, disciples need to be ready to endure the greater loss 
of even the cloak. When they strip you, don't retaliate. Forfeit not only your pride, but your property. So, when they've taken your pride, they've taken your property. Now, thirdly, what are they going after? Point number three, when you're subjugated. When you're subjugated. To be subjugated is to be brought under dominion by force. You can think of being enslaved. They're not only taking your pride, your property, they're taking your freedom. This is all you have left. Look at verse 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, Jesus is not talking about being peer pressured into a one mile marathon, okay? He's not saying, hey, somebody signed you up for a race that you didn't sign up for, so you better get ready. No, no, no. This is a picture of slavery and oppression. One that the Jews were currently living under with the Roman Empire in charge. It was not uncommon for a Roman soldier to lay his pack on a Jewish citizen and say, walk with me. You need to carry this with me for a mile. Nay, two miles. Wow. Imagine that. It's hard to imagine because we're Americans. We have our freedoms. Nobody comes to us and forces us to walk a mile. Nobody from another culture. Nobody from another nation. This is the ultimate picture of oppression and slavery. The only way one human being can force another human being to do something is to enslave them. And so some of you ask, you know, how long, O oh Lord, do I endure this personal attack from my coworker? How long, O oh Lord, do I suffer under this unjust boss? How long, O oh Lord, will I take beating after beating? In your name, they've taken my pride, they've taken my property, now they're after my freedom. When do I fight back? When do I resist? Jesus still says, listen to his words, don't retaliate. Don't resist. Forfeit your freedom. Wow. Wow. In fact, not only forfeit your freedom, But he says, serve your oppressor willingly. If anyone forces you to go one mile, he's forced you to go one mile, go with him two miles. That is humility. That is surrendering your rights, your freedoms, for the sake of not a friend, for the sake of not a neighbor, for the sake of your enemy. This is extraordinary Humility, extraordinary selflessness, this kind of behavior only comes from a person who's been transformed. This is not natural. But Jesus, again, speaks against the natural and shows us the unnatural, the supernatural way of His kingdom. My kingdom citizens are not marked by pride, by retaliation, by fighting for their rights. They're marked by humility and generosity. And in a willingness even to forfeit not only their pride, not only their property, but their freedom. Let's review. First, forfeit your pride. Take the slap. 
Second, forfeit your property. Endure the suing and the stripping. Third, forfeit your freedom. Serve your oppressor. What Jesus just told you is probably the most anti-American message you've ever heard. Pride is at the center of American nationalism. Property is the pinnacle of the American dream. Freedom is the anthem of the American spirit. Jesus just said, you need to be ready to forfeit all those things in my, for my kingdom. Would you? Will you? It's a convicting question. Because it grates against the spirit that we've been raised in. But remember, we don't serve the American kingdom or the American ideal. We serve Christ's kingdom. Christ's ideal. What will you do when others wrong you? What will you do when others personally attack you? Will you retaliate like the beast? Blow for blow, property for property, rights for rights? Or are you willing to forfeit those things and wait on the Lord, pursuing peace as far as it depends on you, like Jesus did, our God and our King? Jesus doesn't ask you to do something that he himself is unwilling to do. Jesus went before you and suffered ill treatment. He endured it for your sake. And he's asking you to follow in his footsteps. Following the negative prohibition, Jesus gives a positive encouragement. Point number three, give generously when asked. Give generously when asked. Verse 42, give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. How are these things related? They are related. If you've noticed, in the previous three scenarios Jesus gave you, you were the victim. Were you not? You were slapped, you were sued, stripped, and you were enslaved. You were in a powerless position. But now Jesus looks to the other end of the table, to those in the position of power, those who have the wealth and the ability to give to those who beg, those who have the wealth and the ability to lend to those who would borrow. And this is his message to them. Be generous with your wealth. Be generous with your privilege. Be generous with your power. The, kind of the core message is the same. Selflessness, humility, generosity. To both people on both sides of the spectrum. First, when the one begs from you, now, there's several thoughts that go through my mind, I don't know about you, when you see a beggar, when someone asks you for money. Here are some thoughts that go through my mind, I don't know if you relate. First thought is, well, they did this to themselves. Kind of reap what you sow, don't you? For whatever reason, they found themselves at this place, and it could be unfortunate circumstances, but often is the case, as we see in America, it's due to drug addictions and other things where they put themselves on the streets in this way. That's one of the first thoughts that I have. I don't know if you relate, just confessing. One of the thoughts I have is I'm not going to give them money because all they're going to do is spend it on liquor or drugs anyways. This is, again, often the case in our society. And so this prevents us from giving to those. Or maybe you have this thought of kind of fake pity. Oh, man, that's so sad. I feel bad for them. But then you just walk right by. Don't do anything about it. Maybe you say, oh, that's really sad because you're in a group of friends. You don't want to look calloused, but you want to sound nice, but 
No actions taken after the remark. So it's just, it's fake pity. These are natural responses that maybe we have in our society today. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, give to them. He provides no criteria, no conditions. He says, be charitable towards those who are less fortunate, who even beg from you. Now, that doesn't mean you don't use discernment. That means you cannot think about best ways to help the other individual, best ways to help the beggar. Maybe you offer to buy them food instead of giving them cash. Maybe you offer to buy them drink instead of giving them cash. But the principle from you, Christian, the natural, or actually the supernatural inclination should be generosity. Personal generosity. Give to them. Give to the one who begs from you. Second, when they seek to borrow from you. The second scenario is when they want to borrow from you. Now, again, I've got natural responses that maybe you relate to. When someone asks to borrow money from me, here are my my next question or my next thought. Will they pay me back? Will I get this money back? Maybe a further question is, what are you going to do with this money? Am I going to see a return on my investment? Is this investment going to be safe? Maybe you go as far to, to think, can I charge interest? Can I make a buck off of this transaction? What does Jesus say? What should be our supernatural inclination, the inclination of a Christ follower? He says, don't refuse them. Give them the money. Even if there's a risk, even if there's a chance that they might take advantage of you. Of course you could use discernment, and you should. You want to seek the ultimate good for this person? Maybe they need to learn financial responsibility, so you're going to help them with that. Maybe the investment is grossly unwise and you want to help this person and prevent them from making that investment. But the principle, again, is one of sincere generosity. Not an inclination to hold back. Not an inclination to think about yourself first. But to give generously. This grates against the natural. This is supernatural. Notice that even in these positive scenarios, Jesus is asking you to be willing to forfeit even to risk your pride. To humbly take on the needs of others. To be willing to forfeit, even risk your property. To give to those who are in need. To be willing to risk, even forfeit, in some cases, your freedom because you bind yourself financially to the other person by lending to them. So, the question is, what will you do with this privilege that you've been given? What will you do with your freedom? What will you do with your wealth? What will you do with the advantages that you have in this life? The reality is, is that most of us are not on the victim spectrum. We're more on the privileged and fortunate spectrum living in the American society, aren't we? So Jesus expects us to be generous for the sake of others. Are you willing to sacrifice the Pride, the property, and the privileges you have in this life for the sake of others, for the sake ultimately of Christ and His kingdom. What will you do when others wrong you? What will you do when there's the potential risk of someone taking advantage of you? Here are the principles to live by. Don't retaliate. Don't return evil for evil. Live generously. Be willing to forfeit all this life has to offer because you live 
for the kingdom to come. Where is Jesus in all of this? Where is Jesus in all of this? Where is Jesus when people take advantage of me? Where is Jesus when others wrong me? Where is Jesus when I've been slandered, when I've been hurt, when I've been even struck? Where is Jesus when I'm sued, my shirt is sued off of my back? Where is Jesus when my freedoms are taken away or they're threatened? Where is Jesus amidst the whole conversation about generosity? Where's Jesus in this risk that I'm taking for this other individual? Where is he? Well, I want to answer that question as we observe the Lord's table in communion. So we're going to now transition to, there's going to be a song that we worship with and prepare our hearts to take the Lord's table. And I'm going to come back and answer that question. Where's Jesus in our affliction? Where's Jesus in this whole conversation? Because I'll tell you, he's forefront and he's center in this conversation. And so as we prepare for the time of communion, um, the band will come up when I pray. But I just want to prepare your hearts by reminding you what communion is. Communion is is an ordinance. It's a symbol that we participate in as believers, the body of Christ. And so it's for those who know God and have experienced His grace by believing in His sacrificial death and His victorious resurrection. If you're not a Christian, just allow the elements to pass. This isn't for you, and that's okay. You can observe, you can listen, and still participate in that way. If you are a Christian, I'd like to encourage you to confess known sin in your life, to confess it before the Lord, to not have that be a hindrance, something that holds you back from participating. Also, if there is a known conflict between you and another brother or sister, you can refrain from taking. The Lord says it's better for you to go make that relationship right than to participate at the altar to worship. So just some reminders before you take communion. This is a sober time, a time for us to reflect on all that Jesus Christ has done for us. So let's do that. Let's prepare our hearts now, and I'll come back with further instruction.